The following sermon is by Dr. Chuck Register, Interim Pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. What a wonderful, wonderful, uh, powerful time of worship. Take your Bible in hand and come with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to do our best to complete a message that I began last Sunday morning uh, sharing with you about the biblical qualifications for a pastor. As you're turning to 1 Timothy chapter 3, I want to say thank you uh, to the third through fifth graders who so uh, kindly made today in the Sunday school hour some thank you notes for Charlene and I. What a wonderful gesture. Thank you guys for doing that. We look forward uh, to reading those this afternoon when we get home. That is mighty thoughtful for you. Uh, I also want to share with you where we're headed in the next few weeks as we focus on um, not only finding a new pastor, but our responsibilities as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning this morning, you'll begin to hear about Who's Your One? Who's Your One is a uh, nationwide campaign in the Southern Baptist Convention to remind us that we've been called by the Father to share the life-transforming message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and here's the campaign in its simplicity. It's built, about, uh, built around your personal relationships. And it's a campaign that asks you and it asks me to simply make a commitment to the Father over the next few weeks that we're going to focus on one relationship in our life. A relationship perhaps with a friend or a co-worker. Perhaps it's a relationship within our own family. And we're going to leverage that relationship, prayerfully asking the Holy Spirit to work in the life of our friend to bring them to faith in Christ over the weeks and months to come. And so uh, as we move into September and we come to the launching of this campaign, you're going to be asked to think of one person one person that you can build a deeper relationship with and through that relationship, share with them how Jesus Christ transformed your life and how he can transform theirs. You'll be hearing more about who's your one in the weeks to come. Now, the sermon series that we began last week is a sermon series designed to help our pastor search team, our follow guide committee, as we're calling them, as they begin their work searching for our next senior pastor. And it's a sermon series in which last week we began to think about the biblical qualifications of a pastor, and we'll complete those biblical qualifications today. And then following that, we're going to have three weeks in which we're going to look at the various roles, biblically, of a pastor. We'll look at the pastor as preacher, and then we'll examine the pastor as shepherd. And then finally, you'll see on in September, uh, because of Labor Day, because of homecoming, we'll wrap up this series in the middle of September with the pastor as leader. And once we finish this four-part series, as a family of faith, we'll see the qualifications biblically of a pastor. We'll look at the biblical roles of a pastor, and our pastor search team will be ready to then begin in earnest in a robust effort to follow the Father to the man he's already chosen to be our next senior pastor. So I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. You'll follow along reading silently as I read aloud, beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul writes, It is a trustworthy statement 
If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is fine work he desires to do. We saw last week uh, that the word overseer is synonymous with what we think of in the church today as the role of pastor. Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must be a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Father, we're continuing a study that you began in our midst as we gathered around your word last Sunday morning. Now, Father, refresh our memory, remind us of, of the principles we learned last week, but then, Father, would you, would you reveal for us new diamonds in Scripture today that shine brightly, that we might understand the biblical qualifications that you have chosen to place upon the man who holds the office of pastor. And Father, as we see these qualifications, help us to make a commitment today that we will search for a man who reflects this passage of Scripture, that, that we'll be able, Father, when we come to our senior pastor candidate, we'll be able to hold up the mirror of 1 Timothy 3 and see his reflection. We desire to have a man after your own heart, a man who fulfills this passage with excellence. And we pray that in Jesus' strong name. Amen. As you're being seated, I would remind you of some of the principles we learned last week as we were studying this passage of Scripture. We discovered that basically there are two non-negotiable qualifications for the man who serves in the office of pastor. And I want to remind you, and I want to say this uh, several times over the weeks to come, as I'm preaching through this series, speaking of pastor, these principles apply to senior pastors and worship pastors and student pastors. They, they respond and apply to all of the men who serve us in a pastoral role at the church. And so we saw last week two non-negotiable qualifications. There must be a call from God, and we saw that in verse 1. Come back to verse 1, and let's quickly remind ourselves. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. That word desire we saw last week speaks of a, an inner compulsion. It, it speaks of something that's deep within our heart that forces us to act. And so in verse 1, we discovered that it is this inner compulsion, this call of God placed upon and in the heart of a man seeking the office of pastor that compels him to serve the local church. And that that is absolutely essential. A man must have a call from God. Secondly, we saw that he must have character that counts. And we saw that in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me quickly. An overseer then must be. The phrase must be meaning absolute necessity. This is not a suggestion. This is a requirement, Paul is saying. An overseer then must be of absolute necessity 
above reproach. It speaks of a man's character. The words above reproach literally means he, he cannot be apprehended. We saw last week that it is a legal phrase that, that if an accusation of illegal actions is brought against a person, this word means there's not enough evidence for that person to even be arrested as a result of that accusation. And so what Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture, a, a man who serves in the office of pastor has to have this call of God in his heart, this inner compulsion to serve the local church that drives him day in and day out. But he also must be a man who has character, such sterling character that even if an accusation is lodged against his character, his character is so pure, his character is so sterling that everyone around says that can't be true. He, he is above reproach. And then Paul spends the rest of this passage of Scripture helping us to understand that there are four areas specifically in which a pastor must have character that counts. And we're going to look at those four areas this morning. He's going to speak of moral purity. A pastor must be morally pure. His character must be above reproach as it reflects and pertains to moral purity. Secondly, spiritual maturity. He's going to look at spiritual maturity and how character is such an important reflection of spiritual maturity. Then he's going to look at the pastor's family. And finally this morning, his character in the community. So look with me as we begin study today about the pastor being above reproach in moral purity. Come with me, verse 3. Let's start back at verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach. And, and here comes this moral clause, this moral purity that Paul is requiring, the husband of one wife. Now that's an interesting phrase. What does the phrase husband of one wife mean? Well, here's what we know it doesn't mean. Some theologians, some scholars look at this phrase, the husband of one wife, and they think that what Paul is saying to young Timothy is that a pastor can't be a polygamist. A polygamist being a person who has more than one spouse. And they, they reflect that in their thinking because in Roman culture, polygamy was proliferate. It was a part of culture for Roman men to have more than one spouse. But ladies and gentlemen, Paul is not speaking about polygamy in this phrase, husband of one wife, because in the first century, you could not even be a part of the first century church if you were a polygamist. So, so there's no reason for Paul to make that a qualification for the person who is the spiritual leader, the pastor, because you could not even be a part of the Christian fellowship of the first century if you had multiple spouses. So Paul is not talking about polygamy. He's also not talking about singleness, saying that a pastor has to be a married man. Some Baptists interpret the passage to say that, that when he says the husband of one wife, that that means that single men cannot be pastors. That's not at all the teaching of this text, and here's how we know that. When you go home today, you take your copy of God's Word and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, and guess who you discover is single? The Apostle Paul. 
The Apostle Paul himself was a single man, the, the second largest person of life, if you will, in the New Testament, only second to Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul. Paul is a single man. So Paul, when he says the husband of one wife, is not speaking of polygamy, and he's not speaking of singleness. Now, the most predominant way that Southern Baptists have interpreted this phrase, the husband of one wife, means that, that a person who's been divorced cannot be a pastor. I want you to hear me clearly on this passage, ladies and gentlemen. For years, that was my interpretation of this passage of Scripture. For at least the first 15 to 20 years of my ministry, if I had been preaching 1 Timothy chapter 3, I would have come to you and said that the phrase, the husband of one wife, mandates that a man who's been divorced can no longer serve as a senior pastor. But I do not believe after further study that that is what Paul is teaching in this passage of Scripture. I don't believe he's speaking at all to the, the category of marriage and non-marriage in the life of a servant of God, whether he's a polygamist, whether he's single, whether he's a man who's been divorced or not. I believe what Paul is addressing in this passage of Scripture is faithfulness to one's spouse. When you come back to the text and you see this phrase, the husband of one wife, literally it means a one-woman man. A one-woman man. A pastor must be a one-woman man. He, he is committed to one woman in his life. He is committed to one wife, one spouse in his life. Now, I want you to hear this plainly. I do think it is wise that a pastor be a man who has never experienced the heartache and pain of divorce. I do think that is wise. I think it's wise because of this passage of Scripture. Look with me down, verse 4 and verse 5. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household... How will he take care of the church of God? I do think it is wise, based on those two verses of Scripture, that the man who serves in the office of pastor is a man who has never been through the heartache and the pain of divorce so that his family life and his marriage can be a sterling example to the congregation to follow. An example that says marriages have a lot of high points and a lot of mountaintop experiences to celebrate, but marriages, every marriage, also has some low points and some valleys. And a pastor should be a man who's been able with his wife to walk through those low points, those valleys, those heartaches, and they've come out together on the other side. And that lifts up an example for the congregation to follow. But I do not believe in this pastor's scripture that that is a requirement that the Apostle Paul is placing on the office of pastor. Now, here's what I also believe. I believe that if a man has, uh, is a pastor and has, has suffered the pain of divorce, that that is for a season in his life a disqualifier. There needs to be a period in his life that he steps away from ministry so that he can focus on his own spiritual health and he can focus on the spiritual health of his family. And when he's doing that, he does not need the weight and responsibility and burden of caring for an entire congregation. So here's what I think Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture as I look at the New Testament in its entirety. The husband of one wife, he, he's not speaking about polygamy and he's not speaking about singleness. He's talking about a one-woman man. He, he's talking about a man who is faithful and devoted and cherishes his wife. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen? 
In the Southern Baptist Convention today, there is an epidemic of pastors who are not being faithful to their spouses. In the last few years, in just the Southern Baptist Convention alone, we have watched prominent Southern Baptist leader after prominent Southern Baptist leader disqualified for a season in his life for not being faithful to his spouse. Professors at three of our seminaries disqualified for a season of ministry for not being faithful to their spouse. The CEO of the Southern Baptist Convention forced to resign just months ago, about 12 months ago, for not being faithful to his spouse. Satan is warring against the men who hold positions of spiritual leadership across the evangelical landscape and in the Southern Baptist Convention. And in many instances, he is winning by leading men to be less than faithful to their spouse. And Paul says unequivocally in this passage of Scripture, a man who is not a one-woman man, a man who is not faithful to his spouse, has no business standing behind the sacred desk, preaching to God's people and leading God's people. But this has not been a recent problem in the life of the evangelical church. Howard Hendricks, former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, as he was teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary, he began to notice that too many men that he knew as former students who had gone on to be pastors, too many of those men were disqualifying themselves from ministry for not being faithful to their spouse. And so Hendricks conducted a study, and I want to share that study with you. It's so important. You see it on the screen. 246 pastors were involved. He spent 24 months interviewing all 246 men. And here's what he discovered. All 246 men had been forced to resign from their church or been dismissed from their church because they were not faithful to their spouse. Here's what he discovered. None of the men were involved in any kind of real personal accountability. Listen to me, congregation. Listen to me, Emmanuel family. When your senior pastor comes to lead you, you make sure there is an accountability partner in his life. You make sure that he has a relationship with someone that is so close that that person can recognize when his life is getting off track, when his life is jumping the rails, if you will, and that person has the ability to stand up and hold him accountable for the way he's living. You make sure he has an accountability partner in his life. The second thing they discovered, each of the men had all but ceased having a daily time of personal prayer Bible reading and worship. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about pastors in this study, but, but these are important warnings to all of us. Amen? Whether we're a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or a committee member or a part of the worship team or simply a follower of Jesus, these are excellent reminders of safeguards that should be in all of our lives. Each day we should have a time of Bible study and prayer keeps us close to the Lord. It's a safeguard. We should all have someone in our life that knows us so intimately that when our life begins to stray off the path spiritually, they can call us back to accountability. Number three, over 80% of the men became sexually involved with the, quote, other woman 
after spending significant time with her often in counseling situations. Number four, this is the one that I really want you to see. Without exception, each of the 246 men were convinced it would never happen to me. Listen to me, sir. Listen to me, ma'am. You're, you're seated here this morning, and as I've been speaking, you're probably thinking, that'll never happen to me. I love my spouse too much. That will never happen to me. I, I'm, I'm too infatuated with my husband or my wife. I, I'm too deeply in love, passionately and intimately with my husband or my wife. That will never happen to me. The moment you say that, Satan takes out a paintbrush and he paints a target on your life. It's better to say, except for the grace of God, go I. That, that may happen to me. So I need these safeguards of an accountability partner. I need to be in the Word and in prayer each and every day. I need to build barriers in my life to make sure that never happens to me. I've seen this happen personally. When I was at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary as a student, I met a gentleman, and I'll simply refer to him as Mark. Mark and I went through master's work together. I knew his wife and his children. They went to church with us in the church that we were a part of. We moved into doctoral work together. We were going to study evangelism together, Mark and I. Mark was one of those guys that he was just kind of a cut above everybody else. You know, he, he was one of the smartest, most outgoing personalities. Everybody knew that, that Mark was going to skyrocket, if you will, to the top of ministry success. He just had it all. We got in doctoral work, and we noticed a change in Mark's behavior. We noticed that Mark began to skip some classes. You just didn't do that in doctoral work. And, and then we began to notice that, that Mark would miss classes where he had presentations to make to the rest of the students, and you, you never did that in doctoral work. I went to see Mark sat out in his office there in the seminary. He was working for the seminary at that time as a doctoral student. Closed the door, and I said, man, what's going on? You're missing classes. You're missing presentations. What, what's going on? Tears began to roll down his cheeks. He said, I never meant for it to happen. He began to explain to me how he had become involved with another seminary student's wife, a young mother there on that campus. He said, I never meant for it to happen. He said, it just started out, at first, I, she would laugh at my jokes, and I would laugh at her jokes, and, and she would compliment my cologne, and I would compliment her dress. And that went a little further, and we would meet for lunch. Then we would meet for lunch across town where no one would see and we would linger a little longer at lunch. And One thing led to another. and I'm leaving my family and she's leaving hers. Ladies and gentlemen, a promising young man of God removed from ministry for a crack in his character, not faithful to his wife, two homes, children, family shattered. 
I, I beg you, Pastor Search Team, you, you, you turn over every rock as you examine the candidate's life that you will present to us. You, you do every background check. You, you check every reference that comes your way. You make sure that the man you bring to us is a man who has sterling character when it comes to morality in his life. And then, congregation, you help him build safeguards accountability partners, devotional time in his life. You build safeguards around him to help him stay morally pure. Well, let's come back to the text. We, we've spent a lot of time talking about moral purity, and, and we needed to. I'm going to have to really, really just touch on the other areas. He, he speaks of two other areas of moral purity. Look at verse 3, not addicted to wine. It, it, it doesn't say he, he, he cannot taste wine. He cannot touch alcoholic beverages, though I think, again, that is wise for a pastor to have that principle in his life. But it literally means not one who sits long at his wine. I mean, just think about that picture, a guy who, who sits long at the drink. He's there, and he continues to pour a bottle, and he continues to pour a bottle. He's sitting long at the drink. A pastor can't be such a person. And there's a third area of morality that we'll just touch on. Uh, look with me, verse... Three, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Now listen, some Baptist congregations think that means free from money. <laughs> and we want to make sure we set the, the salary of the pastor down so he's free from money. It's free from the love of money. It's talking about motive. He doesn't engage in ministry because it's somehow financially lucrative to him. It is that call of God, that inner compulsion that drives him to, to minister hard, to roll up his sleeves and, and to invest himself in your lives as your spiritual leader. It is not for some kind of financial gain, an easy way out. Let, let's be honest. If you're a lazy minister, it is the easiest gig in town. If you're a lazy, slothful minister, you, no one's watching when you come to work and no one's watching when you leave. No one keeps track of what you're really doing in the evening time. No one's tracking you as perhaps in other professions. So if, if you're a lazy pastor, it's easy to be lazy in ministry. This is talking about motive. We serve out of this inner conviction, this inner compulsion. We don't do it for some kind of easy lifestyle or for the love of money. That's the concept of moral purity. Let's look at spiritual maturity. When we come to this text, Paul also speaks that a pastor should have sterling character when it comes to spiritual maturity. Look with me, if you will, of verse 6. Paul says, and not a new convert. Now, this phrase, not a new convert, doesn't speak of chronology. It doesn't mean he's been a Christian for many years. And literally, the phrase means not a newly planted tree. We're not talking about a sapling here. Pastors shouldn't be saplings in their spiritual walk. They should be oak trees in their spiritual walk. They shouldn't be just newly planted trees. They should be full-grown, mature hardwoods, if you will, in their spiritual maturity. Now listen, that... That takes time. Though Paul is talking about spiritual maturity in this passage of Scripture, to reach spiritual maturity does take 
time. It takes life passing by. It takes experience in life in order to build up the spiritual maturity necessary to lead a congregation. And look at some of these ways that he is to be spiritually mature. We're not going to have time uh, to look at each word and the meaning of each word, but come back to verse 2. Let me just show you some of these words. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Temperate, that speaks of spiritual maturity. Prudent speaks of spiritual maturity. Respectable, hospitable, all of that speaks of spiritual maturity. Verse 3, pugnacious, gentle, peaceable. Not pugnacious, gentle, peaceable. All of that speaks of a man's spiritual maturity. What Paul is saying is this. The man who fills the office of pastor must not be a spiritually novice individual. He must not be a spiritual rookie. He needs to be a man who is mature spiritually. That's taken life experience to get there. It's taken ups and downs in ministry to be seasoned to the point where you are spiritually mature. Now, the third area I want us to see, because it's so important, it ranks right up there certainly with moral purity, and that is he must have character that counts when it comes to his family. Come back and look with me, if you will. We've already seen the husband of one wife, verse 2. Come with me, verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well. The word manages there is a word that means to stand before. It's a military term, and it speaks of the military information. And who stands before the military information? The commanding officer. That's where the general stands. That's where the colonel stands. That's where the lieutenant stands, depending on the size of the military unit. The man in charge always stands before his troops. That's the picture that's being built here. And so a pastor must be a man who, who stands before his family in leadership. And I would say to you, there are three characteristics that a, a man should use in standing before his family. He needs to love them unconditionally. That's certainly a part of the equation. He needs to be an example to them of how you control your temper, uh, how you treat other people, how do you treat people who are uh, perhaps superior in rank in life, and how do you treat folks who are perhaps further down the pathway of life? How do you treat people? An example to them. Speaks of leadership, how he leads his family. But it's not just standing before. Come back to verse 4. Let's see how Paul kind of qualifies this. He must be one who manages his own household well. That word well speaks of visible excellence. So a pastor is to be a man who so leads his family that others can observe his family and see that he's leading them well. You, you don't have to be an intimate friend to know how well the pastor leads his family. He's leading his family so well that you're able from a distance to look and you can see the visible excellence with which he leads his family. You've seen that before, haven't you? You've seen the opposite before, haven't you? Our pastor must be a man who so leads his family that all the world can see the example he is for them. 
the spiritual leader that he is for them, the way he nurtures and loves and cares for his wife, the way he loves and tenderly guides and disciplines his children with visible excellence. There's one other thing I want you to see on this passage of Scripture where it pertains to family. Come back with me. Verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. The two words under control means that the children line up under his leadership. Again, it's a military phrase that, that speaks of the sergeant who lines up under the lieutenant and the corporal who lines up under the sergeant and the private who lines up under the corporal. The children line up under their father's spiritual leadership in the home. And then there's one last characteristic that I want us to see. He must have sterling character when it comes to the community. Look with me, verse 6. And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those. What's the word? Outside the church. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. The word reputation used in this verse literally is the word witness. Your pastor must be a man who, who has a witness that is good and solid and strong and reputable, not from those that are simply in the church, but those who are outside of the church. My brother Steve, he is the middle of three boys. I'm the youngest. Steve retired in November. He was an agricultural banker all of his professional career. About six years ago, I was home Christmas one day, and, and I just simply said to him during our Christmas family time together, I said, man, how's business going? He said, it's really pretty good. I said, well, have you foreclosed on anybody lately? With a kind of a smirk on my face. He said, only the preacher. I said, what? He said, the preacher. He said, I've had one loan I had to foreclose on this year, and it was a preacher. He wouldn't pay his loan note. He said, I tried everything I knew to do to help him. He said, we, we forgave it. We winked at it. We gave him extensions. He said, we did everything we could possibly do. He just wouldn't pay his note. And he said, I'll tell you this. I won't ever make another loan to a preacher again because of the way this guy has behaved. What kind of witness is that, ladies and gentlemen? Not only for the man of God, but what kind of witness is that for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? A man who has such a reputation outside the church that when the world looks at him, the world says, we, we want to have nothing to do with this individual. What kind of reputation is that for him and the congregation that he leads? And so our next pastor, pastor search team, has to be a man who when, when you go and do the reference checks, you, you don't just check the names he's listed on his resume, who are his best buddies that are going to say wonderful things about him. As a matter of fact, if you look close enough, he'll probably list his own mom as one of his references. <laughs> but you dig back to the second, third, and fourth layer until you finally talk to the high school principal, perhaps, and say, tell me what you know about so-and-so. Maybe you talk to the mayor of that small town where he might be serving right now and say, tell me what you know about so-and-so. 
and just see what the world has to say about that man. Paul's pretty strong in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He's strong in laying out these qualifications for a pastor because he knows that the office of pastor must be protected. It must be a man who is called of God to serve the local church, and it must be a man who has character that counts in every facet of his life in order to protect, ultimately, the witness of the bride of Christ, the local church. Every head bowed, every eye closed for just a second. Every head bowed. We've been talking a lot about pastor and qualifications of a pastor. But every Sunday morning, I want you to hear very clearly and very plainly the heartbeat of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for you on Calvary's cross. Whether you're male, female, young, old, a husband, a wife, whether life is going your way or life is really falling apart around you, Jesus died for you. And if you would simply embrace his death on Calvary's cross as payment for your sin, if you would turn away from your sin and repentance and submit your life to the Lordship of Christ, this morning your sin can be forgiven. You can have life everlasting and abundant life on earth. Would you be willing to come to Christ today? Just trusting his death as payment for your sin. Perhaps you're here and your church membership is somewhere else, but God is just, he's nudging you. He's leading you to become a part of the Emmanuel family. Would you do that? Would you just simply come and say, Chuck, today, my family and I, we, we want to join this family of faith. Maybe this morning you want to come and simply kneel and pray. You want to pray for that man who's going to be our next pastor. We don't know what he looks like. We don't know his name. We don't know where he is, but God does. He's chosen him, and maybe you just want to come and pray for that man today. This altar will be open for you to come and pray. Father, would you speak to your children? Would you lead your children to make the decisions that you are asking of their lives today? Some to commit their life to Christ, others to come and join Emmanuel Fellowship, others to come and pray, whatever that decision may be. Father, you speak. Help us to obey. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand together, I'm here to pray with you if I can help you. Let's stand together. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Register, interim pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, visit us on the web at ebcraleigh.com.